Hi, how you doing? Welcome to my podcast, A Design for Life, how to survive and thrive at life. My name's Phil Mears, entrepreneur, mindset coach, and I want to share with you my life lessons and how I learned to survive some unbelievable life traumas. But also, from that, I designed a successful life for myself. I'll also share with you my harrowing backstory and how I can help you with not just the big life-affirming challenges and changes you want to make to your life, but also the little everyday challenges when you're feeling a little bit disorientated and you maybe need a little bit of a boost to get you going again. This podcast is where you'll discover my secrets of how to apply a positive mindset to uplift your life when you're feeling a bit stuck, maybe don't know which way to turn. And you will be able to thrive in ways you've never before imagined and perhaps start living the best life you can. I'm excited to have you with me here, so thanks for tuning in. So, hello guys and welcome to the first episode of my podcast, A Design for Life, How to Survive and Thrive at Life with me, Phil Mears. I'm super excited to be here with you and I'm glad that you could join me because this podcast has been something that has been in the planning stage for a little while. But 2023 was the catalyst to give me the kick up the backside and actually get on with it. So I hope that you enjoy it and I'm glad that you're here with me. So I'm going to start really with um, a bit of a roller coaster journey that I'm going to take you on. Um, but it illustrates how I got to the mindset that I have now. And I went to some very dark places on this roller coaster and it led me to question the point of actually carrying on with my life. And I even had a strong desire to end it. But at the, at the end of it, there was something remarkable that happened that turned my life around and led me to the path that I'm on now. So simultaneously, this was the worst thing that happened to me and in many ways, the best thing. But the journey all began with this kind of mindset when I was age 17 and I joined the Royal Marines, walked into Commando Training Centre in Limpston as a very excited teenager, but also very apprehensive of the journey I was facing, as you could probably imagine. But the most important part of this journey was that I finally felt that my life was on a path of my terms and that I was escaping finally escaping my toxic parents and the bullies that had plagued my childhood. Now I'll explain in more detail about what happened during my childhood and my toxic parents but safe to say that I'd made a decision when I was quite young that as soon as I could get away from home I would and that joining the forces was going to be my escape um, and it was and that Life was suddenly going in the direction that I wanted uh, wanted it to and that I finally felt that I could prove to them and myself that I was in fact the strong, capable survivor. I'd always felt inside that I was, but I'd suppressed that belief out of a fear of attracting the attentions of people that I felt wanted to do me harm. And I was now going to walk upright and straight and be proud of who I am. However, just when I started to become this person, my life changed uh, unexpectedly, permanently, and any plans I had were shattered into a million pieces in the most devastating of ways. Two years after joining the Marines, I was at home in the Peak District, 
late one Friday afternoon. This would be about a month after Live Aid. So this was August 1985. And on this afternoon, I was excited because later that evening, I'd got a date, a first date. And so I'd got to get ready and I'd been thinking about that. But I'd got a bit of time before I had to get ready and go out. And I decided that uh, the motorbike that myself and my brother had been working on was uh, a suitable way to use this time because we'd been trying to push this bike over 100 miles an hour. When we started with the bike, it, it hadn't been a runner, uh, but it had in its past been quite a fast bike. So we were determined to get it above 100 miles an hour. And I thought, I've got time to take it out and I'm going to do just that one way or the other. So I, in my mind, I picked a country lane, a straight country lane and in proximity to where I lived and I set off on my journey. And so when I got to the bottom of the road, this will be about six o'clock on a Friday evening. I knew the road would be pretty quiet. And so I just set off. I opened the throttle, got my head down and just focused on that speedometer. And I just literally held on for dear life as this bike accelerated and it eventually hit 100 miles an hour and at that point I looked up and I could see that the road was coming to an end when I say coming to an end the straight part of it was coming to an end and there was a sharp left-hand bend um, coming towards me at a rapid speed now I had two choices here because there was a track that went straight on down to a quarry however Blocking the eggs, uh, the entrance to the uh, track were three massive boulders. So I wasn't going to hit them because that would be lights out. So I had to somehow navigate the corner, which I did to a point, um, until my rear wheel caught the grass verge and then shot across the road in the opposite direction, locking the handlebars and flipping me head, head first over them. Now, sometime later, I uh, realised that I must have landed on my head with, on my crash helmet at high speed because the crash helmet had split in two. But ultimately, I'd spun down the road and I came to a stop with my head in the grass verge and my legs across the centre of this narrow country lane. And as soon as I stopped, the first concern, anyone that's had a motorbike accident will... Um, understand what I'm saying here your first concern is for your bike is it going to be in one piece am I going to be able to get back on it and ride it what's the damage so I tried to sit up and I couldn't in fact the pain was excruciating just trying so I took my helmet off and tried again but it wasn't working I just couldn't sit up I couldn't move my legs I didn't have the strength to push myself up so I, I started to think about where I am so I'm lying in the road and I'm looking around me and just to my right is a big dip in the road and I was literally lying across the road at the brow of this hill and it started to dawn on me that any car coming along this road would go into the dip and then would crest the um, hill and maybe not see me 
and actually literally go straight over me. So I became concerned for my position and I decided to try and drag myself to the side of the road. However, this wasn't working. There was nothing to grab hold of and just the pain trying to do so um, prevented me um, achieving that. So I just lay there trying to take in my surroundings and it was starting to get dark and of course I was getting a bit concerned. Luckily it wasn't raining, otherwise that would have pissed me off. Um, But eventually, after however long it was, I have no idea, but I did see the headlights of a car coming towards me and they disappeared into this dip and of course (laughs) I didn't know how fast this car was going, how... Um, whether it would see me or not. So I grabbed hold of my helmet and as soon as the car crested the hill, I threw my helmet at the at the bonnet. And fortunately, the guy stopped and he then realised what the situation was and went and phoned for an ambulance. So the ambulance came and scraped me off the road. And later in hospital, I was lay face down on a bed bit like a massage table where you've got a little gap for your face and I was lying on this bed and I was visited by a doctor who came to talk to me or rather to the back of my head now all I remember about this doctor were his shoes uh, which in my opinion could have done with a bit of a clean I remember um, noticing that they weren't as clean as they should be for a doctor working in a hospital Uh, but also his aftershave which was bloody awful I mean, this was the 80s. There's no excuse for a doctor not to be wearing Paco Rabanne or Koros like the rest of us. Um, but he carried on talking to me and he was asking me to move my feet. Could I move my feet? And could I feel this? Could I feel that? And the answer was no, I couldn't feel any of it and I couldn't move my feet. So his prognosis was that um, I was suffering from paralysis. And that was it. He left. And I didn't really know what to make of this. Sure, I knew this was serious and I knew something uh, big had happened, but perhaps I wasn't prepared to admit to it myself. And I didn't believe it. So the next day, I was transferred to the Spinal Injuries Unit in Sheffield. And after settled in and so on and so forth, the consultant came to see me and perched on the edge of my bed and started talking to my mother, not to me to my mother I was 19 years old I was an adult so why not talk to me anyway he announced that the next 10 days will be crucial for any signs of improvement in my condition and if there were no signs of improvement within that time period chances are my paralysis would be permanent so the next few days as you can imagine I'm waking up every morning in the hope that the uh, situation has changed and that I can move my legs and that I got some feeling back but every morning my hopes were dashed it wasn't happening but I believed that it would be a matter of time because across from uh, my bed I was on a sidewalk with only two beds in it and the young lad in the bed opposite me had had a scooter accident not dissimilar to mine but he got up and walked out So I believe that it's just a matter of time. Any day now, I will do the same. However, day 10 came, no change. Then day 11, the same. And then on day 12, my consultant came back to uh, talk to me. And I say talk to me, he did the same thing, sat on the edge of my bed and proceeded to tell my mother that I had in fact got paraplegia 
T4 complete. Uh, and basically what that means, T4 is the level, uh, which is the thoracic area of your spine. T4 is chest height. So I was, in effect, paralysed from the chest down. And that it was complete, which meant that the spinal cord had been completely severed. And then, as is now, cannot be repaired there and then. In fact, you can't repair it. And you still can't. And as a result of this, he announced that I was unlikely to ever walk again. And the blood just drained from my system. I felt cold and I was trying to make sense of this. My, heart, my mind was whirring and going off in all sorts of directions. None of them good. But so much so, I nearly missed the second part of his cheery diagnosis because he wasn't done with the good news yet. Again, facing my mother, he told her in a very matter-of-fact way that because of the limitations of paraplegic care at the time, I was unlikely to live to get to 40. So I'm still digesting the first point to fully appreciate the implications of the second. But basically, as I understood it, at the age of 19, I was now middle-aged. And as this new devastating reality began to sink in, I, just, I, I just stopped talking to anyone. I became completely mute. My mind was spinning so fast off in, in many directions. It was like I didn't have the brain power to form speech. So this, this is where I began to believe that my life was over. To such an extent that I believe there was no point in carrying on with it. And that the earliest opportunity I had, I had to end my life. I literally couldn't see anything worth living for. Because here was I, a 19-year-old, having always been quite sporty and physically and capable, um, but only really believing it for the last couple of years. And now I knew I'd never be able to go for a run again. I'd never drive my car, walk in the hills around the Peak District where I lived. I wouldn't even be able to climb the stairs to go to the toilet and even though the girl with whom I had the date arranged, the first date when I had my accident, she was still coming to visit me in hospital. But surely that was just out of sympathy. Eventually she'd stop coming and I would never have a girlfriend again. I'd never have a partner. Nobody in their right mind is ever going to be attracted to someone in a wheelchair. And so I spiralled deeper and deeper into this well of despair and then one morning nurses came to move my bed and it was at this point I found my voice again anyone within 50 feet could hear my displeasure at the idea of being moved um, and so they were moving my bed from a side ward into the main ward with the rest of the spinal injuries patients and when I eventually came to a stop in this space and the nurses uh, moved away and left me there I began to look around me now I say look around me because I'm lying flat on my back here in fact I lay flat on my back for three months unable to sit up but not allowed to sit up for fear of further damage I mean I'm completely paralyzed from the chest down what further damage am I likely to do to myself but nevertheless I lay flat on my back so I'm looking from side to side to get my bearings and I just noticed that everybody's staring at me, as you would do 
if some gobby 19-year-old swearing and using every expletive under the sun was dragged onto the hospital ward, you'd have a look and see what was going off. And I just decided to ignore all these people and stared at the ceiling and to just get on feeling more and more desperate, desperate to end my life. Um, and not being allowed to sit up, I had no idea how this was going to happen, uh, but nevertheless I was determined that it was going to and after some time of this spiraling I became aware that there was someone sat next to my bed and in fact it was a young lad who turned out to be a couple of years younger than me and he was sat in a wheelchair looking very poorly indeed and he'd got a plastic thing stuck in his windpipe because he'd had a tracheotomy and he'd got this kind of funny little joystick thing under his chin, which he was using to control his wheelchair. And he was just staring at me, and then he introduced me, sorry, introduced himself to me. Uh, his name was Trevor, and asked what my name was, and I ignored him. So he carried on talking to me, and then started telling me jokes to try and cheer me up. Um, I can't remember what the jokes were, but I, w I wasn't in the laughing mood, to be quite honest. So I just continued to ignore him. And then he noticed on the cabinet by the side of my bed, I had a radio cassette player and some tapes. And if you don't know what they are, ask your parents. And he asked me, are you going to put some music on then? Now, music had always been my salvation and pleasure then as it is now. But despite this, I <clears throat> just replied, no, if you want music on, put it on, but leave me alone. And I just hoped he'd piss off. But it was then that he said something that would change my life. In fact, no, it would save my life. And it did. And he replied to me, well, I'd put the music on, but I can't move my arms. So I suppose you'll have to do it. And immediately, and I mean immediately, it began to dawn on me just how fortunate I actually was. Trevor couldn't put a cassette in the machine, but I could. Not only that, if I could do that, what else could I do? I could feed myself, I could dress myself, I could scratch an itch, I could even wipe my own backside. So I put some music on. I put in Now 5, as I remember. It was a cassette I'd only bought a week ago, or two weeks ago, something like that. Uh, and as Duran Duran started to sing about A View to Kill, I became more amenable to Trevor. And I wanted to know his story because he did look very poorly and he couldn't move his body apart from his head. And talking just seemed to call, cause him an, a lot of discomfort. And I was curious about this plastic tracheotomy thing in his windpipe. So he told me his story and it's the most hideous story I'd ever heard at that point. Because what had happened, Trevor had been swimming in a river with his friends, bearing in mind this was summer, and he they'd been jumping and diving off a small bridge that went over the river. And Trevor dived off this river, and he went to one side of the... Uh, sorry, he dived off this bridge into the river, to one side of the river. And just below the surface was a brick wall or some rocks, and he hit them head first as he dived off the bridge. And that snapped his spine at a very high level. C2 is the vertebrae he broke. Um, and the, the net result of that was he was completely paralysed from the neck down. 
couldn't move a thing. And when I saw him, he'd actually been taken to the spinal injuries unit. In fact, no, he'd been taken to hospital near him first. And he'd been in intensive care. And it was touch and go whether he would, in fact, survive. So when I saw him, he'd not long been out of intensive care. And here was he looking extremely poorly, having gone through all that, sat in my sat next to my bed telling me jokes to try and cheer me up. And suddenly, when I compared myself to him, life didn't seem quite so bleak. And particularly the way he ended his story. Because he literally just said to me, hey, shit happens. And that's a phrase I've lifted from Trevor. And I use that whenever I've told my story to anyone. Hey, shit happens. Because here was, now, my life was going to be a little bit different I think because for the first time I felt this sense of optimism and later that evening when I'm lying in the bed and it's very quiet on the hospital ward I began to do what I'd done every night since my accident and that was to start thinking about my life and what it was likely to be but whereas up until that point I'd been thinking all the negative thoughts and how I wanted to end my life this night was different it was very different. Instead of me focusing on what I was never going to be able to do again, I was now experiencing this sense of optimism and thinking about all the things that I could do and how I might actually be able to live a fullish life for life again. So thanks to Trevor's positivity and persistence, I now had something so important, so valuable that I hadn't had to this point. I had a reason to live. So I made a pledge to myself that night that I would never, ever feel sorry for myself again. Yeah, I'm a paraplegic, but that's not actually as bad as some people. And yes, I might not live to see 40. Well, so what? I'm 19 and there's plenty of time for me to do all sorts of things. And I wanted to know now what they were and could I get my life back on my terms again? A very different life to what it used to be, but on my terms. So from now on, I was going to focus on my abilities. Not my disabilities, but I was going to live a life as full as possible. And when you begin with this mindset, it's amazing how much you want to cram into your life, especially when you know your time is limited. I mean, think about how many incredible inspirational stories we've heard about people who have been given a life-shortening prognosis. And it fires them up to not waste a minute of what's left of their lives. And they go on to achieve such amazing things for themselves and for others. And these people leave behind a legacy that makes them and everyone around them feel a little bit fuller, prouder, inspired. But isn't it the truth, actually, that all of our lives are limited? Because although... Many people don't have an idea of just how limited it's going to be or when it's going to end, thankfully. It is still limited, nevertheless. And as we age, we will only become less able, not more able, and therefore less capable of doing the things we really want to do with our lives. Every day that passes, we are a day closer to the window of opportunity for doing amazing things and living an amazing life, being closed forever. Your life will eventually as you get older, cease to be a series of firsts. 
i.e. things that you do for the first time, and more a series of lasts. So with that in mind, what haven't you done yet that you've always been meaning to do? And I'm not talking about the big things like trekking through the Amazon or uh, climbing Kilimanjaro, although there's no reason why you couldn't do them. It could just be simple uh, as running a half marathon, reading a book from that huge list of books you wanted to read, learning to paint, or just getting in touch with someone you've lost contact with. And take it from someone who, at the age of 19, had so many avenues closed off to them, and only for other ones to open up, I say to you, don't take for granted that your tomorrow will show up the way you expect it to, because I have known many people like me for whom that wasn't the case. Anything can happen to take away the choices you have in life today. And sure, I had plans for my life before my accident, and who knows if I would have achieved them, or even tried. I certainly wasn't conscious of being in the right mindset then, so I definitely didn't appreciate the importance of taking the action before you no longer have that choice. But if you live your life with a subconscious belief that your time on this planet is limited, then you will get more of the things done that you want to do and leave behind more of the baggage that has been holding you back. But you have to take the actions. And those are the differences between elevating your life from the surviving phase to the thriving phase and not. I can't stress that enough. It's the actions that you take are the most important part of the process. In my life as a mindset coach, I speak to people who have big ambitions about a life full of wealth and fulfilment and how they're going to achieve huge things and everybody will revere them. And yet, despite reading all the books, Tony Robbins, James Clear, Stephen Covey and many, many more, their lives remain exactly the same. And they come to me un unsure or unable to fathom why it's not happening for them. And it's because nine times out of ten, they've taken no action or they've tried a half action and given up and just picked up another book. Some of these people even go to seminars across the world and they spend huge sums of money to do so and they mistake this for action but their lives remain the same it isn't action it's hiding and convincing yourself that one day it will happen one day my life will be what I want it to be but as we've said before that one day might not show up I once heard someone being famous sorry I once heard someone famous being interviewed on the radio about how his career began and I was in my early 20s and when I heard this it totally resonated with me and he said that his father had told him when he was young to decide what he wanted to do in life and do it because you don't want to get to 40 and look back regretting the things you never did. Now that was a light bulb moment for me because I'd had the prognosis that I wouldn't make it to 40 so I kept this mantra with me because of just that point. Now this man was Rick Parfit from Status Quo and he'd been talking about the drive he felt to become a rock and roll guitarist. And his father had said to him, if that's what you want to do, son, then do it. Because you don't want to get to 40 and look back and think, oh, I wish I'd done that. And imagine that he'd made all the excuses for not doing it. Um, and he'd gone on to become an insurance clerk or whatever. Then the world would have been deprived of status quo. 
and you can make your own mind up on whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. But nevertheless, he had a tremendous life, Rick Parfit, because he took the action needed and he committed to it. And I'm sure there are bedrooms full of around the world full of youngsters as there was when I was young um, that dream of this kind of lifestyle being a famous rock star or being successful or a millionaire or something like that but they use the excuse that they've got no idea how to get started or they have a lack of confidence or self-belief and don't think it could happen to them for not doing anything about it. And there are dozens of excuses I've heard when talking to people with big ideas and some with just small ideas about the person they want to be and the life they want to live. But nothing changes for them. They put up obstacles in the form of excuses as a means of reasoning away why nothing changes for them. One of the biggest excuses people use to avoid making changes to their life before time runs out is to move away from that shitty job you do every day because you've got bills to pay. Now, I understand this mentality. I've been there. I've suffered the stress, anxiety and panic attacks of getting up every day and working in a shitty job I hated. I've woken up with palpitations so strong I struggled to breathe. And just putting a toothbrush in my mouth makes me heave and makes me feel sick because the anxiety is so acute. And that I've had to lay down, I've had to spend the afternoon lying on the sofa waiting for my heart rate to settle down because I've had a panic attack, because I hated my job so much. Well, this is a whole other topic and I will cover this in the coming episode. How to assess what you do and why you do it. And I mean really why you do it. What you've got talents for what you want to do and how to transition from where you are now to where you want to be. When I began with this mindset, I had no idea how I was going to achieve my goals, just a belief and a determination to commit to applying the time, money and effort to make it happen. And it happened. As I say, I'll cover this in more detail in a coming episode, but I will always come at it from the point of view of there are no excuses. Because if I a regular guy in a wheelchair can do it with all the limitations that that posed for me, then so can you. By adopting this mindset myself and taking the action needed to make things happen, my life has been on one hell of a roller coaster. But I've crammed an awful lot into it since those dark days back in 1985 and I haven't finished yet. I'm now 57 I've been married for 29 years. I've been with my wife for 30. I've got two grown-up boys with lives and careers of their own. And being an entrepreneur has given me and my family the kind of lifestyle I never thought possible before my accident. But once I started to believe I could achieve so much, I began to believe I could achieve so much more. And I did. I expanded my goals. I studied and I made plans. But more importantly, I took the actions needed to achieve those goals. It wasn't all sunshine and roses, don't get me wrong, there have been huge mistakes, tremendous failures, enormous challenges and crushing disappointments. But overall, I believe I've made a decent fist of it. As I said, I'm now 57 and now I have to admit, hitting 40 was a huge milestone for me, as I'm sure you can imagine. Because for 20 years in my subconscious, I felt I wasn't going to get there. And the closer I got to it, 
the more my subconscious became my conscious. And I became more and more aware of the fact that it was almost like a, um, a death sentence. But pushing beyond 40, I attribute two things to that. One is obviously the advances in spinal injuries care. But the other is looking after myself to keep as healthy as possible, mind and body. So when I got there, of course, I had to mark the occasion of being 40 in a significant way. Well, you would, wouldn't you? And I thought about how I was going to do this so I could have a big party and invite all my friends and do the usual thing. But it's something bigger than that. So I bought a Ferrari. And that's something that a lot of middle-aged people do. Middle-aged men, it's a cliche. You buy a Ferrari. And if that's the case, well, so be it. Because being middle-aged at 40 is much better than being middle-aged at 19. But I want to help you make a decent fist of your life as I did mine. And obviously, I promised, I proved to myself and to my consultant that he was wrong and I did live beyond 40. So if there's one lesson to be learned from this episode, it is that shit happens and it can happen to anyone at any time. I never believed that I was supposed to be in a wheelchair. You know, for um, a lot of people believe that there is a fatalistic element to their lives. Bullshit. Your life is what you make of it. And because you can reason away that fate has dealt you a bad hand. And yeah, okay, felt they they dealt me. I'll get my words out in a minute. Um, Fate dealt me a bad hand. But it's not the hand that was the problem. It's how you play that hand. So I played my hand to the best of my ability. And it worked eventually. So the lesson here is that from today... You need to start making different choices and taking different actions. And think about something you can do today that will start you on that process. How about this? Put your phone down. Put your phone down. Abstain from social media for today. Because if there's anything that's going to drain your resources, mental resources, and hold you back from getting where you want to be, it's social media. So have a a break from it. And use that time to do something more constructive, more positive. I've given you some suggestions, but I'm sure if you put your mind to it, you can think of something you can achieve today that is going to feel like you are on that right path. So in the coming episodes, I'm going to share with you more of my backstory because it's been a challenging story. From the day I was born, there were challenges. And yes, my accident was a significant one. But my childhood is one hell of a journey. But I learned a lot from it. So I'm going to share with you how I reframed my childhood and my upbringing. And it's enabled me to make a success out of my life, despite the many physical and uh, mental disadvantages that I started with. I hope that you hear more of what I've got to say and that you stick with this journey because I think you'll get a lot out of it. But in the meantime... Thank you for being here and I look forward to catching up with you again soon.
Thanks for listening to my podcast, guys. I really appreciate your company. And I hope you got something from this episode that can help you with your life. If you did, then click subscribe because I've got so much more to share with you and I don't want you to miss a thing. Also, why not bring your friends on the journey and share this podcast with them? You can post feedback in the comments section. I'd love to hear what you've got to say. Or you can get in touch with me direct by visiting my website at designforlifecoaching.com. Especially if you're struggling at the moment and you need a lift. In the meantime, stay safe guys and I look forward to catching up with you soon.